Do you remember that old Simon and Garfunkel song, just trying to keep the customer satisfied? Satisfied. Well, there was a time when most retailers really tried to do that. Today, not so much. The goal is to make the sale and then move along to the next customer. It's really annoying. I'm Herb Weisbaum, the Consumer Man, a contributing editor at Checkbook.org. Welcome to Consumerpedia at Checkbook.org. We're the nonprofit that helps consumers select services, avoid trouble, and save money. Because we don't accept any advertising or take money from any business we recommend, you can rely on Checkbook.org to be completely independent and objective. Now, here's the host of Consumerpedia, America's consumer expert, the consumer man, Herb Weisbaum. In this episode, why so many companies see customer service as a costly problem rather than a way to keep the customers they worked so hard to get? Why is calling on the phone so difficult or impossible? And is there anything you can do to get your problem solved after the sale? Joining us today, two experts in the field of customer satisfaction. John Pico, founder of Watermark Consulting based in Hartford, Connecticut. He's also the author of a new book, From Impressed to Obsessed. Hi, Herb. It's good to be here with you. And Forrest Morgison. He's an associate professor of marketing at Michigan State University and director of research emeritus at the ACSI, the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Hello, Forrest. Hi, Herb. So from my viewpoint and from what consumers tell us here at Checkbook, customer service in this country is pretty bad. Stores with almost no employees, and when you do find one, they're often unfriendly. Customer service lines that can keep you on hold for hours, and companies that don't respond to complaint letters or emails. So I'd like to start off with how both of you would rate the state of customer service in America right now, and I'll start with you, John. Well, I think it's pretty crummy, as you might expect, I'd say. And I think if you look at the uh, research out there, it really provides a lot of evidence of that. And it's everything that all of us feel day to day when we're engaging with businesses just as consumers. You know, just to give you a taste of the data that I think sort of illustrates this, uh, my firm did a study recently, consumer polling, to understand people's sentiment and their expectations. And amazingly, we found that only 23% of consumers say that businesses consistently meet all of their expectations. That is setting the bar awfully low. And then, you know, to add insult to injury, people actually say uh, we found 36% of of consumers um, say that when they're about to engage with a business, only 36% believe that it's going to be easy to work with that business. So I think that we as a society have become so accustomed, so habituated to crummy customer service that it's almost like we've, we've come to expect it to some degree. I I agree with you. Forrest, the ACSI surveys hundreds of thousands of consumers every year about dozens of industries from airlines and mobile phones to healthcare and financial institutions. What are some of the universal problems that people have when they deal with companies today? Well, I think the reality is is that the problems that people have with industries are to some extent idiosyncratic. They vary industry by industry. No industry does a really outstanding job in the sense of always meeting or exceeding customers' expectations. There's always problems consumer experience uh, somewhere, whether they be big or small. But of course, we do see that some industries perform well below others. And I'm thinking of telecommunications industries, subscription TV and internet service providers are some of the least pleasing industries across the U.S. economy. And they all have their own reasons why. In those cases, it's you know rapidly increasing prices and not terribly efficient service. And you have a, a large number of outages and those kinds of things that have 
have a negative effect on consumers, but it does vary industry by industry. John, you work with businesses. Are there some overriding issues that you tend to deal with? I think a key issue is people simply not doing what they said they were going to do. That is representatives of a business that you're working with. You know, whether it's saying that they're going to call you back uh, at the end of the following day, or they're going to get you some piece of information. I think that there's just sort of this lack of focus and consistency around honoring one's commitments to you. I think that's a common source of frustration. I think that another one too is the difficulty that consumers have interpreting information that businesses provide to them, whether it is um, instructions for how to assemble a product or a financial statement, a billing invoice. Very often those documents are viewed by companies as sort of administrative touch points and they don't realize that it's actually a very meaningful part of the entire customer experience. And if you don't craft those documents effectively, you end up creating the need for customer service because people have to contact you to understand, you know, why is my billing statement say this? Or I'm having trouble assembling this product. Can you help me? Let me share a personal customer service horror story. My wife and I went to the local branch of Chase Bank, been doing business there for decades. We wanted to open a new savings account and the friendly greeter at the door asked why we were there, looked around and said, I don't think there's anybody here right now who can help you. I saw the branch manager was in his office. We've worked with him before. So I said, what about him? Oh, he doesn't open new accounts, she said. So she took us over to their personal banker, someone we'd worked with before, and he was in a really bad mood, said he was called in on his day off, really didn't want to be there. So how about we come back next week? By the way, we had a $20,000 check in our hands that we wanted to deposit. To me, that's the state of customer service these days. That's not a terribly unusual experience in a, across a lot of service providing industries. And of course, we've seen it get particularly bad over the last few years as the labor markets become tighter and tighter and companies, particularly customer facing service positions, they're having problems filling those positions. And with that, you get more stress on existing personnel who may be wonderful customer service deliverers under normal circumstances, but now are being asked to do more and more for the same pay and add into that inflation, their pay is you know, functionally going down in many cases. And it's a really, it's sort of a nasty recipe for disaster for a lot of companies. John, I know companies are trying to reduce costs, but they spend so much money getting customers. Why risk losing them to lousy customer service if they have a problem after the sale? Doesn't seem to make economic sense. It does leave you kind of scratching your head, but there are two ways that you can run your business. You either run it with the goal of maximizing customer loyalty, or you run it with the goal of minimizing customer attrition. And those are two very different approaches. One focuses on enriching customers' lives, and the other focuses on exploiting them, frankly. Uh, unfortunately, many businesses choose the exploitation route. They focus on minimizing customer attrition. They try to do only as much as is absolutely necessary to get you to stick around. That's their business model. They feel that makes more economic sense. Do as little as possible, invest as little as possible, and just make sure that the customer doesn't get so angry and frustrated that they leave. And I'm not suggesting that that's a good model. Indeed, you know, it might drive financial results in the short term, potentially, but in the long term, it's a one-way ticket to the business graveyard because you can't grow a business over the long term if your existing customers despise you. 
In your book, John, you make the case that great customer service can actually cost less for a company to deliver. Yeah, and I firmly believe that. Many companies think that to deliver better service, they're going to have to dip into their pockets and spend a lot more and create sort of this Ritz-Carlton white glove kind of experience. But the fact is that great service costs less because when you do things right upstream, on the front end, it obviates the need for customers to contact you downstream, often with dumb, avoidable questions. Smart companies focus not just on making customer service better, they focus on making the need for customer service to go away entirely because everything just works perfectly as it was intended at the point of sale and shipping and delivery at product assembly, whatever. Uh, and so when customers stop calling and chatting and texting you about dumb things, it puts less stress on your operating infrastructure and you're able to deliver that better customer experience at a more competitive cost. Here's the problem. And, and you might say, well, why don't more companies just get that and do it? And the issue is that the way many companies measure their performance, the way they monitor their financials, the benefits of great service and the penalty exacted for poor service can often be kind of invisible to them. And I'll give you an example here, Herb, with product assembly. You know, we've all had the experience of ripping our hair out, trying to decipher some incomprehensible exploded parts diagram and instruction manual. And if you think about it, the investment that's required to create clearer instructions, it's something that would be borne by like the product development area in a company. But the issue is that the benefits of those clearer instructions they would be manifesting themselves in a totally different part of the company. They'd be manifesting themselves in the customer service financials because that's where you would see a reduction in call volumes. And as simple and silly as it may sound, many businesses just can't wrap their heads around that. Like they have a very siloed mentality when it goes to justifying investments and evaluating the ROI on investments. So if I do something in department A and the benefit is in department B, it's a lot less likely that's going to get approved because if I'm heading up department A, I'm just going to do things that are going to help me and my performance review and making sure that, you know, my financials look good. And unfortunately, that's why there's a disincentive in many organizations to pursue those kinds of improvements. I've always heard that a happy customer tells three people, an unhappy customer tells 10. Is that still the basic rule applied here these days? I think it is, absolutely. You know, there's many studies that illustrate that dichotomy in terms of how often a customer with a poor experience is going to tell others. I think also these days, that dynamic is amplified because now with the advent of social media, everybody can shout from the rooftops in a way that wasn't possible before that technology existed. So there's a lot of risk for any company that disappoints its customers to the level where they actually go online and they start raging about it because a lot of other people are going to see that. Forrest, you mentioned not being able to get help. You know, you go to the supermarket now, my local Safeway, and I'm thrilled when there's actually a check line open. Usually there isn't one at all. Going to self-service a couple of weeks ago, and there was a digital coupon, and I left my phone in the car. So I asked the person who was managing self-checkout, could you please give me the discount, which Safeway says, if you don't have your phone, they'll do that. And I was basically given a lecture. I'll do it this time, sir, but you know, you better get used to figuring this out because this is the shopping experience of the future. That's where we are? 
Well, self-service technologies are, they have a long learning curve and we're seeing that in consumers not being able to efficiently check themselves out of a variety of retail environments. You're finally seeing some retailers here in the United States go away from self-service technologies and go back to uh, actual human delivered customer service in the checkout process because they're finding not only do self-service technologies not work for a lot of consumers and create the need for human intervention anyway, but the, the loss ratio is much higher on the self-service technology as people figure out ways to circumvent paying for what they're actually buying and leaving the store with. So you're seeing some of that pushback. I think the reality is that in the long run, we're going to see more and more self-service technologies. We're going to see retail environments that have virtually no or possibly no human customer service delivery at all. And so we are going to have to get used to that. Retailers would be well served in terms of maintaining positive relationships with their customers and creating long-term customer loyalty by easing the frictions and, and making that as palatable a process as possible in the interim. But I think the reality is that uh, over the long run, that's definitely where we're going to be going and keep heading in that direction. You know, every time I do something now, whether it's buy a can of paint at Home Depot or have my car service at the auto shop or have a blood draw from my doctor's office, I get an email asking me to rate my experience. I've actually taken the time to fill them out responding that I had a horrible experience and would never buy something from that retailer again. And crickets, no response. Does anybody read these things or is it just done to give me the illusion that they care about me? What many companies don't realize is that customer surveys aren't just an instrument for measuring the quality of your customer experience. They're a bona fide part of the customer experience itself. You know, some companies send out surveys with dozens and dozens of questions, and what they don't realize is that their customer satisfaction surveys are actually dissatisfying their customers. You know, it's like you don't want to end up there. Furthermore, they don't have the the organizational discipline around doing something with the feedback that they get. And that risks reinforcing negative brand impressions. You know, just like you described, I've been there too. The nature of the business I'm in, I always respond to surveys just because I want to see what's the company going to do. And when you express a lot of frustration in a survey response, and then you don't hear anything but crickets in return, what signal do you think that sends to the customer uh, about the company, you know, in terms of how important their feedback is? It just really serves to cement the negative impression that you had formed when you first chose to fill out the survey. And that's what companies miss. I mean, imagine, Herb, if, if in one of those companies that you just provided really awful feedback towards, imagine if the next day you got a phone call from a manager at that company saying, hey, we got your, your survey feedback, just wanted to have a chance to, to talk to you about it, better understand it, see how we can you know do better in the future. That might not completely turn the tide in terms of your impression on that company, but it'll start. Because that'll be surprising to you that somebody actually read it and reached out to you to have a conversation. And more companies need to do that. You know, something that really gets my blood boiling is being kept on hold for what seems like forever to speak to that customer service agent, if you can even find the number to call in the first place. So how do we deal with that? We're going to talk about that next and hear from some Checkbook subscribers who have a few gripes on their own about that. I'm Herb Weisbaum, and this is Consumerpedia, powered by Checkbook.org. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider being a Consumerpedia supporter by using the link at the bottom of the show notes to make a small contribution each month. This is Consumerpedia. Okay, let's talk about trying to reach a company by phone. The first challenge is trying to find the number, which many companies make it difficult or impossible to find on their websites. I want you to listen to what Clio, a checkbook subscriber, said about that. That I'll dial a number that's listed for customer service once I find the number, and usually they'll tell me to go online, which is 
very frustrating because obviously I wouldn't be calling if the online option had worked for me. And once I finally do get a person on the phone, it's just a circle of hell sometimes. Um, I don't get an answer. I'm told the exact same thing I read on the website. And when I try to escalate, usually that just leads to further frustration time and time again. And it is extremely frustrating. John, I assume that's deliberate. Companies are trying to make it hard for you to find the number to call? It absolutely is. Uh, you know, that is their seemingly clever way, they think, to reduce incoming calls. What they fail to realize is that you're not really materially reducing calls. All you're doing is ensuring that the customer's temperature gets turned up before they reach one of your service reps. And so it, you're just adding insult to injury. You're making it more difficult for uh, the reps that are taking the calls. And it's obviously not a good outcome for the customer. Then if you do find the number to call, you have to navigate the phone tree. Here's how another checkbook subscriber, Tracy, described that experience. And then once you get there, then you have to go through their system of press one or press two. And sometimes they want you to use words instead of numbers but they can't understand you. The options don't necessarily fit your situation and you're now getting transferred to the wrong place and now they want to transfer you to the right place and they disconnect you. So now you got to start all over again. It makes me feel very, very frustrated with the amount of time that is lost. And I am not even making this up. I have spent 45 minutes to two hours just trying to reach a person who can answer a simple question. So, Forrest, I know there's a need for phone trees because they're trying to send you off to the right customer service agent, but they are getting a little bit ridiculous, especially when you can't push O or say human when none of the options make sense to you. It's not what you're calling about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they do make it exceedingly difficult to get a human being on the line to ask that. And I understand the caller's point. Most of these companies are trying to, as much as possible, minimize the number of call center customer service personnel they have available for cost reasons, of course, and profitability reasons. Reasons. I think the near-term hope is that as we get better and better artificial intelligence technologies that are able to answer many of these questions for consumers, and that's rapidly improving as we see in the world around us, we're going to get some of that kind of technology to bear here in a much more efficient way, which will replace some of the customer service personnel that these companies are trying to trim and at the same time have a difficulty filling those jobs to begin with. But the frustration, the true frustration is when none of the options on the phone tree meet what you're calling about, John, and you can't push zero, you can't say customer service agent or agent or representative because they don't have the system designed for that. You are trapped in phone tree hell and can never get out of there. Yeah. Like Forrest said, uh, I mean, they're, the tricks of the trade are just keep saying customer service rep, agent, uh, if it's a voice response system, or just you know keep hitting zero over and over again. And sometimes that will work. But yeah, in its worst form, you're right that there are companies that just engineer this in a way so that you can't get to somebody. I think this is actually indicative of a larger issue, which is that companies don't step into the shoes of their customers that often. You know, when was the last time the CEO of any company actually called their 800 line and pretended to have an issue? And, you know, they get to experience the horror of going through the, all those menu levels and not having one that matches what they need to do and, uh, you know, getting routed to a, a web page that gives you a 404 error uh, back 
back and doesn't give you any information. I, I don't think that top executives at companies are routinely immersing themselves in their customer service experience. And so they're somewhat ignorant to what it really feels like to be their customer. One more comment from a Checkbook subscriber. Nancy said that if you do make it through the phone tree, you can find yourself on hold for a really long time. The music that you have to listen to while you're waiting online, which in some cases is just the same little jingle over and over and over again. And you can't turn it off and you don't want to sign off because you're afraid you'll lose your place in line. So it's like Chinese water torture. It's painful and it's irritating. The skeptic in me wants to believe that maybe they have such terrible music because they're hoping you will ditch the call and not bother them. Possibility, John? (laughs) You're definitely looking at the world through a very nefarious lens, but you might be right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, I try to be a little more optimistic uh, in the goodness of people, but yeah, that is possible. But the fact is that companies could do so much more with that time and that space. So for example, one of the fundamental things about delivering better experiences to people is you want them to feel like they have some control over the experience. And so when you're waiting on a 800 line, instead of playing awful music, you should be giving people an update to say, we expect that your call is going to be answered in five minutes. And there's technology that does that. And it's very effective because a known wait feels much better to people than an unknown wait. And so using that kind of technology, it's like they might not answer the phones any faster, but just having the expectations set when you're there actually makes that experience feel a lot more palatable. And I would argue that's a much better way to use that time than to play some awful music. Companies could also give you relevant information about products or features you know, that you might not be using. Something that's better than making your ears bleed from some terrible symphony. And John, some companies give you the option, God bless them, to leave your number so they can call you back. That's a fabulous option. Keep you in the same place in line, but they'll call you back. It is. And it's a shame that more companies don't use that technology because it's not terribly expensive. It's readily available. And it again goes back to this notion of giving people the sense that they have control in the encounter. If I feel like I'm railroaded, meaning the only way that I can speak to you is by phone and I have to stay on this line, and what is that a signal of? It's a signal that you know we don't value your time as a customer. But if you give me the option that, hey, you could call me back when someone is, is ready and I don't lose my place in line, I feel like I've got more control over the experience because I'm able to go about my day and live my life until you are ready to speak with me. And so it might seem like a very subtle difference, but it really sends a signal to the customer that, hey, we're not trying to waste your time. And that's a much better experience. How many times do you need to hear this message? Your call is important to us. Please stay on hold before it's obvious your call isn't important to them. Is it 10? Is it 12? Is it 75? (laughs) I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer to that one. But you're getting my point. They keep running that same message over again, telling you're important when it's clearly you're not important. Yeah, it's another example of companies not walking the talk. They say one thing, but their actions demonstrate something else. And and I don't think what companies appreciate is that ultimately, customers' loyalty towards you is not going to be governed by what you say and what your marketing materials communicate and what the billboard says. It's going to be governed by the experience that they have. And no matter what you say, the experience is going to speak for itself. So is there anything we can do to get companies to improve their customer service and help us when we have a problem? That's coming up next. I'm Herb Weisbaum, the Consumer Man, and you're listening to Consumerpedia, powered by Checkbook.org. 
Consumerpedia Fast Facts. According to research by Salesforce, 91% of the customers surveyed said they are more likely to make another purchase when they have a positive customer service experience. 83% expect to engage with someone immediately when contacting a company. 78% said they would forgive a company for its mistakes if they received excellent service. 71% said they've made purchase decisions based on the quality of customer service they received. So how do we deal with this reality? Is there anything we can do to encourage companies to take better care of us? John, your thoughts? Well, I think that the key thing for consumers is you need to be aware of and work to combat what's known as consumer inertia. Human beings were lazy creatures at heart. We prefer the path of least resistance and companies count on us to be lazy. Herb, you mentioned earlier your your experience with the bank. Well, banks are notorious for this because it takes a lot of work to switch banks. They're counting on that friction to keep you around even if they're not good to you. So consumers need to be cognizant of that and they have to vote with their feet, even if it results in more work for them in the short run, whether it's uh, you know researching a new bank, for example, uh, or and arranging for all the automatic payments and credits to be transferred over. Also, whether it's a bank or any other type of company, another thing to do is to make sure that you're telling this business that you're thinking of taking your business elsewhere, and you need to make that statement credible to them. Uh, so when you're calling in and you're frustrated, good trick is to indicate that you're planning on canceling your service, You know, whether that's a menu option or, or saying that. And I think the best recent example, Herb, I have of this, which I just thought was classic, was with my cell uh, service provider, who I've been with for nearly a quarter of a century. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm happy about it. It's just that I haven't <laughs> had good alternatives. And I was actually just recently, I was exploring uh, moving my cell phone service because all of my phones in my family are all paid off. What I realized was that in order to transfer your phone number, you actually have to get a special code from your current cell phone carrier, and you give it to your new one to transfer your number. So when I went to my current cell phone provider's website, and I clicked on the link just to see how you go about getting that code, mm -hmm. miraculously, the next day, I got an email from my current provider telling me that I was getting $10 off per line per month on my account for the next year as a thank you for my loyalty. Wow. I guarantee you they would never have sent that out if I had not clicked on that link. But that's what I mean about sending a credible signal to the company that you are serious about looking for alternatives. But the bottom line is we as consumers have to vote with our feet. Don't get lazy. And that's when companies are going to see that there's a cost that is exacted to delivering poor service. Forrest, are the days of trying to talk to a human being over and we just need to deal with live chat? Well, I don't know if they're entirely over. I think we're certainly headed in that direction. Um, the reality is that while we as consumers may really prefer the opportunity to talk to an actual person when we are forced to call into a contact center for some kind of problem with the product or service that we're consuming, we may like that ability to talk to a human, but the reality is for most industries, it's not the norm any longer. The, the idea is across these industries that companies tend to mimic one another within the industry and do what the industry leaders are doing. And so as long as you have uh, industries where those industry leaders are going away from those kinds of technologies, 
companies, and I'm thinking of big companies like Amazon and retail now, and just think of the largest company in each industry. And if that company isn't doing it, if they're not giving customers the opportunity to talk to an actual person during a product or service failure episode, then it's very unlikely anyone else is going to do it. I think the, the saving grace is probably the fact that we're going to get better and better live chats, better and better virtual agents that are more capable than ever before of answering our questions as consumers. And that may be what is ultimately responsible for helping improve customer satisfaction and service across the economy. We used to give the advice that if you're talking to somebody and they can't help you, try to escalate. Say, can I talk to the manager or supervisor? But these days you'll get an answer like, I am the manager or there's no one else here. I got to get this off my chest. This is a true story. I was on a call with the American Express online bank trying to fix a serious problem with a hold on a $20,000 deposit that had gone on for months. And when I very nicely asked if there was anyone who could expedite the situation because I was running out of money, I was told, quote, sir, if you don't like what I'm telling you, you can hire a lawyer and sue us. How's that for a customer service response? I doubt American Express trains their people to say something like that. Yeah, I uh, I certainly hope they don't train their people to say that. But you know, I think that if you encounter a situation like that where you're treated so poorly, uh, you know, I do think that it is it's still worth asking for that to speak to a manager. Okay, that's the first step I would say. But second, I would enlist the help of a regulatory or an oversight body. That would be the second step in my view. And then the third step is post on social media if you're active on social media and tag the offending company. This might sound crazy that you know, you're know you talking to someone on the phone or you're in the retail location and they won't help you, yet if you tag them on social media, they'll respond. But that actually is what happens oftentimes because there's a team of people that's monitoring the social media channels because they don't want anything toxic to be going out there. And you might actually garner more attention with them as compared to you know just talking to someone on the phone. And then lastly, if none of that works, I'll go back to my earlier statement. Take your business elsewhere and vote with your feet. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to thank both of you for being with us. John Pico, founder of Watermark Consulting and the author of the new book, From Impressed to Obsessed. Thank you, John. Thank you. It was great to be with you, Herb. And Forrest Morgison, he is Director of Research Emeritus at the American Customer Satisfaction Index. You can see what they do at this website, the ACSI.org. Forrest, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of Consumerpedia. We hope you'll rate this episode and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, we release new episodes every other Thursday. Another way you can support this show is to follow us on Consumerpedia on Facebook and Instagram and at MyConsumerpedia on Twitter. I'm Herb Weisbaum. Thanks for listening. Consumerpedia is a public service of Checkbook.org. We're a unique nonprofit that helps you save money and make smarter choices. You can count on Checkbook to help you find the best services and avoid the worst with local ratings that are accurate and unbiased. If you live in or around these seven cities and haven't joined Checkbook yet, check us out. Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, Seattle, San Francisco, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and Washington, D.C. To get your free 30-day subscription, go to checkbook.org consumerpedia. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll become a supporter by using the link at the bottom of the show notes to make a small contribution each month. Consumerpedia, empowering consumers to save money and make smarter choices.